the very first book of the Bible, the Old Testament book of Genesis, we read the very first promise given by God after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And it's also the first message of salvation that is proclaimed on the face of the earth. And theologians often call it the first gospel. And these words spoken by God contain the first promise of redemption. Everything else in the Bible flows from these words in Genesis 3. Hear them. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I, was, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And here's verse 15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now that last verse, those are simple words that foreshadow for us the entire plan of salvation. The, English, the great English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. And although we may not see it at first glance, Jesus is in this verse. He is the ultimate seed, the ultimate offspring of the woman who would one day come, or, uh, he would one day come and crush the serpent's ugly head. And in the process, his heel would be bruised on the cross. In short, this verse predicts that Jesus would win the victory over Satan, but would himself be wounded in the process. Now, these words would not be fulfilled until thousands of years later at a place called Calvary outside the city of walls of Jerusalem. But all of that was in the future when God spoke these words, and neither Adam nor Eve could fully have understood what these words would one day mean. And because this verse is so important in the history of our salvation, we need to understand something about its context. So let me begin with the observation that this verse takes place near the beginning of human history. Adam and Eve have just eaten the forbidden fruit, and sin has entered paradise. Their first impulse is to hide from God. 
Their second is to make excuses for their sin. Adam blames the woman, and Eve blames the serpent. And no one is willing to stand up and say, I did it. It's my fault. I take full responsibility. Suddenly, paradise is not so beautiful anymore. Eden has been ruined by the entrance of sin. Dark shadows fall on the ground as Adam and Eve contemplate what they have done. The smell of death is in the air. Under a nearby tree, the serpent lies quietly, and he alone is happy. He delights in what is happening, for this was his plan from the very beginning. He intended to humiliate God by ruining paradise, and now he's done it. He has shown the whole universe that God's great experiment will not work, that no race of beings could ever be trusted to fully and freely obey God. Left to ourselves, we always disobey, even in paradise. And as God surveys the moral wreckage of the fall of humanity, he immediately begins to pass sentence, and he begins where the sin began, with the serpent, and later he will come to the woman and then to the man, but he speaks to the serpent first. And although we may not realize it at first glance, this verse is not directed at you and me, although it certainly applies to us. God is the speaker, and the serpent is the one being spoken to, and in two short verses, God passes judgment on the serpent for his part in the fall of humanity. First, he is cursed above every other animal. Second, the serpent will crawl on his belly forever. And third, he will eat the dust of the earth all the days of his life. Now, the bad news for the serpent is that there's no good news for him. God doesn't ask him why he did it or what he did, because the Lord God had already previously judged Satan when he threw him out of heaven. There's no extenuating circumstances to consider. There's no motions to file. There's no high-priced lawyer that's going to change this case. And even though verse 15 contains the first mention of the gospel, there is no ray of hope for Satan because he's forever excluded from God's plan of salvation. For the serpent, there is only a curse and then a public judgment. God steps in, he takes up this fight personally, and he causes Satan to be disgraced on the very battlefield in which he has gained a temporary success. Now, in some ways, what we call the fall marks Satan's finest moment. When he deceived Adam and Eve and and they chose to follow, uh, he wrecked God's plan and he gained the whole world for himself. For a few short hours, (coughs) temporarily, he won the great battle, but his victory was short-lived. And everything since is downhill for him. With that understanding of the context, I want us to consider verse 15 of here of Genesis 3. And what does it predict for Satan and for us? And it, I want to summarize this teaching in three short phrases. And the first one is this. This verse tells us that in this world we are going to experience endless conflict. I, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and, I will strike your, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The key word here is hostility or animosity. One translation says, I will set a feud among you. Another says, there will be war. Note that God himself takes responsibility for this state of affairs. First Eve and then the serpent will never get along. 
And if Satan thought that by deceiving her, he had Eve in his back pocket, he was very wrong. Eve made a huge mistake, but she would never join the serpent's fan club. Everyone dreams of living in paradise, and now that Eve has been cast out of paradise, every hard day will remind her to hate the serpent even more fiercely. But the deeper meaning lies in the word offspring. In the Hebrew, the word is seed, referring to the generations yet unborn that would trace their heritage back to Eve. Now that seed or offspring refers to the men and women of faith in every generation who believe in God. That is, there's a godly line that leads us first to Adam and Eve's son Abel, and then to Enoch, and then to Noah, and to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Joshua, and Gideon, and Ruth, and David, and Daniel, and Esther, and eventually culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the offspring of faith. But Satan has his seed as well. And throughout history, and in every generation, in every country, city, village, tribe, clan, and every family, Satan has had his people. And that line starts with another one of Adam and Eve's children, and his name was Cain. He killed his brother Abel. And it moves on to the wicked generation that was talked about in Noah's day, and to the Pharaohs who opposed Moses, to the Canaanites who blocked uh, mocked Joshua. It includes all the pagan peoples of antiquity as represented by Goliath who laughed at David and David's God. Who was it that threw Daniel in the lion's den? Who hated the prophets and murdered them in cold blood? It was the ungodly line of Satan. And then we come to the days of Jesus. When Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him. When he grew up, the Pharisees opposed him and plotted to take his life. Satan even infiltrated Jesus' inner circle, filling the heart of Judas with malignant evil. And when he was arrested, men stood in line to lie about him. When Pilate offered to release Jesus, the bloodthirsty crowd cried out for Barabbas instead. The commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way, and he says that it was the devil that put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus of Peter to deny him, of the chief priest to prosecute him, of the false witnesses to accuse him, of Pilate to condemn him, aiming in all of this to destroy the Savior and to ruin salvation. Who was behind the crucifixion of Jesus? Again, it was the ungodly. In this, That's the real conflict of the ages. There's always been a struggle between those who believe in God and those who don't, between good and evil, Beginning in Genesis chapter 3, there is a fundamental division in the human race. Francis Schaeffer speaks of it as two humanities that arise after the fall of humankind. He says, from this time on in the flow of history, there are two humanities. The one humanity says there is no God, or it makes God in its own imagination, or it tries to come to God in its own way. And then there's the other humanity that comes to the true God in, in God's way. And he says there's no neutral ground between the two. See, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent have, a, have opposed each other continuously across the centuries, and that struggle continues even to, to today. There have been people in every generation that have enjoyed criticizing the church, especially when the church takes stands on moral issues. 
We've had people from time to time who've not liked what we've taught or stood for. We've, we've had some who didn't want us to teach the whole message of the Bible, just focus on the parts that aren't too controversial, that are easy to listen to. And I've heard that kind of thing for years, and it doesn't surprise me, but Genesis 3.15 predicted that thousands of years ago. This is a, there's a group that often wants to stir up controversy precisely because we teach the Bible and because it's our desire to put God first in what we do. But God didn't call us to win the popularity contest. He will judge us on the basis of our faithfulness to his word. Remember the words of Jesus in John 15, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out from the world, so it hates you. See, Jesus never promised that people wouldn't criticize us. He just told us not to worry about it. Being hated by the world is part of the continual conflict that goes back to Genesis 3. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. If you've ever had a, a heel spur or a pulled Achilles tendon, you know how painful that can be. We don't normally think about our heels too much until we start having problems, and then what happens? We end up on crutches or taking painkillers or maybe even having surgery. Heel problems tend to slow us down, but heel problems aren't generally terminal. We can live with heel problems even though we may hobble around a bit. When our text says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel, there's a twofold reference in this verse. First, it refers to the fact that in this life, sometimes Satan wins the battle. Sometimes Satan wins the battle. He has many tools in his arsenal and he shoots them at the people of God 24 hours a day. Sometimes we are wounded by things like discouragement and criticism and anger and bitterness and Perhaps when our cherished plans go astray or dreams don't come true or projects never get to fruition and goals sometimes get frustrated despite all of our best efforts. If you want proof that Satan wins temporary victories, just go visit a cemetery. Every grave testifies to Satan's power and we'll all get there. But this text reminds us that the Christian life is not a bed of roses. There is going to be continual conflict in this world, and sometimes the bad guys win. The bad guys win a fair number of battles. But there's another meaning. When Christ died on the cross, Satan struck his heel. Where, Jesus body, uh, where on Jesus' body were the nails pounded in? Do you remember? On his hands and on his feet, right? On Friday... About sundown, when they took the dead body of Jesus down from the cross, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. But on Sunday morning, the true winner walked out of the grave alive. Listen to these colorful words by the um, great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said, look at your master and your king upon the cross, all disdained with blood and dust. There was his heel most cruelly bruised, when they take down that precious body and wrap it in fair white linen and in spices and lay it in Joseph's tomb, they weep as they handle the casket in which the deity had dwelt. For there again Satan had bruised his heel. The devil had let loose Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas and the Jews and the Romans. That is all, however. It is only his heel and not his head that is bruised. 
for ultimately the champion rose again. You see, Satan delivered a terrible blow to Jesus on Good Friday. No doubt he had thought he, he won the knockout punch, but he was wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel, and as painful as that was, all of that suffering did not compare to what Jesus will do to Satan. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Comparing those two phrases for a moment, first there is the heel versus head, and there is the striking versus crushing. Is some texts use those two words interchangeably. When Jesus died on the cross, he delivered a crushing blow to Satan. Who do you think won that battle ultimately? You see, heel wounds are painful, but heel wounds don't destroy us. But a few, few of us would, 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 would survive a crushing head blow. See, the cross was God's death blow against Satan. It was the paycheck for the fall of humankind and more. And when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he ultimately defeated Satan. Philip Brooks has a wonderful passage that shows how Jesus won the battle, even though he was dying. And he says, he was wounded sorely, a life all torn and bleeding. He dragged out to the very end, but when the end came, it was victorious. Look at him on the cross. Sin has taken the Savior and fastened him there. It is driven in the nails. It is crowded down the crown of thorns on his forehead. It has seemed to have its own way with him, and all the while... With those hands closing in agony over the nails, he is crushing its life out. Sin is tormenting him, but he is vanquishing sin. To say it another way, if Satan had been crushed in the moment on the cross when Jesus died, why does he still have so much power 2,000 years later? We know that Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth, how can a defeated being who was crushed by Christ exercise so much power? And the answer to that is that Satan was judged and his sentence was pronounced at the cross. But God has given him freedom to roam the earth awaiting his final execution. And that explains why Satan's destructive power on this earth will grow greater and greater in the last days before Christ returns. And in the end, he will be destroyed and all of them, those who follow him, will also be destroyed. Let me wrap up this message today by considering how all of this applies to us. And here's the first point I want to make. The Christian life will always be a struggle. Struggle implies effort and sweat and exertion and difficulty, and that's why Paul uses images like the runner and the boxer and the wrestler and the soldier and we're told that the Christian life will never be easy. It's hard work. It demands our full commitment, our full engagement. Until the day we leave this earth, we will struggle against temptation, and sometimes we're going to win, and sometimes we're going to lose. Don't be discouraged, because the Christian life is not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. We're in a war. Life is hard. Times are difficult. The enemy attacks us at every opportunity. Salvation is free, but no one gets a free ride through this life. The Christian life will always be a struggle. Secondly, our victories will not come without some wounds. If, if it pleased the Lord to bruise his own son, how can we escape the wounds of life? 
If Jesus suffered in doing the will of God, so are go we are going to suffer. And at the cross, Satan struck a blow and he wounded Christ in his heel. And even after his resurrection, his body bore the marks of that suffering. But the same will be true for us. We will struggle hard in this life. And in the struggle, sometimes we're going to be wounded. But don't despair. Be thankful and struggle on. If you feel like running away from your struggles, remember that there's really nowhere to run. If you leave the battlefield today, you'll wake up to find yourself on another battlefield tomorrow. So you might as well stand and fight. We're dreaming if we expect an easy victory for any great accomplishment. But yet success waits for every good cause if it can persevere and struggle on despite the wounds. There is no victory without wounding, and there's no progress without pain. The coward who shrinks from the wounds and the boaster who forgets that there are wounds have both missed the true meaning of this text. And then here's the third point. God's plan of salvation is wrapped up in a person. Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel in the entire Bible. You might have missed it because the Jesus, name of Jesus is not in the text. But he's there nonetheless. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He's the offspring who would one day make his entrance in the world in the most unlikely fashion. And as the centuries have rolled on, Satan keeps winning victories and God keeps raising up men and women who will continue to the godly line here on earth. And I like to think of this verse as the top of kind of a wide funnel, you know. Uh, when the promise was given, no one could have imagined the coming of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman simply meant that he must be a member of the human race. But after the flood, the line was narrowed to Noah's descendants, and then later to Shem's descendants, and later it came to rest on one man, Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, and then it passed to his son Isaac, and to Isaac's son Jacob, and Jacob's son Joseph, and then to Joseph's son Judah, and centuries later the line was narrowed to the house of David. And some nine centuries after that, the line came to rest on the firstborn son of a virgin by the name of Mary. And what started with the whole human race has narrowed to just one person, and that is Jesus Christ. He didn't come in the usual way. He came by means of a virgin birth. No one ever entered before since has entered the world like he did. And thus he is the ultimate seed of the woman because no man was involved in his conception. You see, when God wanted to save the world, he didn't send a committee, he sent his son. And when God wanted to say, I love you, he wrapped that love note in swaddling clothes. And when God wanted to crush Satan, he started in a stable in Bethlehem. Now it may interest you to know that John Wesley, to whom we trace our roots in United Methodism, wrote a familiar Christmas carol that we'll be singing, I'm sure. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know it well. But he included a verse in that original writing that was based on Genesis 3.15, and most modern hymnals omit this verse, which is unfortunate because there's some good theology in it, but he said, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now erase, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, restate us in thy love. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory 
to the newborn king. I want to close this morning by just asking you three questions. And uh, these are questions that Paul Little, uh, a famous evangelist, often asked people as he shared the gospel. And very simply, the first question is, have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Or are you still on the way? Some of you are still on the way toward Christ. And as you hear these words today, you realize that step by step, you are coming closer and closer to a moment of decision. Second question is, if you're still on the way, where are you in that spiritual journey? Are you still far away from God and uninterested, or do you find yourself being drawn closer and closer to Christ? And then third, are you ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, no decision that we ever make in this life is more important than that one. And no one else can make that decision for you. If you aren't ready, then nothing I say or do can compel you to come to Christ. But if you are ready, then it's time to do your business with God. The Bible says in John 1.12 that, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And would you like to do it today? If the answer is yes, there's a simple prayer that I invite you to pray. I'm going to pray it, and you can just follow along in your heart. Let's pray together. God, I know that I am a sinner, and I confess that I have sinned many times in both word and in deed. And I humbly confess that I've broken your law and that my sin has separated me from you. So here and now I confess my sins and ask Jesus to be my Savior. I believe that Jesus is your only Son who died on the cross for me and rose from the dead on the third day. And with all my heart and with all my soul, I am trusting you alone for my salvation. So forgive my sin and restore me to a right relationship with you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and make me a brand new person today. These things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you made that decision this morning, we'd love to hear from you and be able to pray with you and support you in that decision.